Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I am Scott Challoner and you join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of unique perspectives on leadership. A little later on in the show today we'll be joined by former Education Secretary and Leaders' Council Chairman Lord David Blunkett. But first and foremost I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Thomas, Director of Cortec Developments Limited. The business is a privately owned specialist integrated software manufacturer providing graphical user interfaces for the management of third-party manufacturer systems for safety, security and building technologies. Mark, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Good, Good morning. Good morning, Mark. Pleasure having you with us. Um, The reason we're here, of course, is to discuss your take on leadership. But considering that this generation of business leaders is probably going through one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it would be remiss of me not to ask just how it's been trying to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic over the last few months and how that's affected your operations. Okay, Um, so it's been both negative and very positive as well. Uh, Obviously, we were surprised and... uh, rather surreal experience as it gathered pace to full lockdown and uh, it did impact on our business operation staff suppliers and ultimately our customers and um, what we've got to really do is say thank you for previous investments in um, ISO 9001 2015 which allowed us prepare in advance uh, to be ready for this and that included such things as business continuity plans and being able to adapt to the situation and have everything documented within our organization so uh, first started uh, we had uh, previously we had uh, customers who come to see our product that suddenly stopped and we also had operations will deploy our software on site and uh, the sites uh, phased in and closed down um, and that we had to adapt to so the first thing we did was look to our business continuity plan we looked to uh, the guidance so we work with an external HR specialist who provide our uh, HR facilities for all our staff so coordination with them, plus the business health and safety guidance. We had to then introduce, uh, because if I remember rightly, it was started off by making sure there was adequate uh, protection for individuals uh, distancing within the company. And that involved around moving desks and then phasing people to move to work from home. Um, and then we then acted upon that where we deployed the majority of our staff uh, working from home uh, using IP technology and um, secure VPN links to the office, which um, allowed us to continue quite normally, actually. And uh, we then looked towards uh, making sure, obviously, everything was secure. And one of the benefits of of the COVID was it gave us some time because operations stopped, but we still had to support customers and uh, we had to support existing systems in. So even though we weren't getting the orders, 
um, and, and converting them into deliverables, we were able to then look internally and see where we can make improvements in using the time. Um, one of them was where we accelerated the program for gaining ISO 27001, which is security information. So we already had a, a security policy, but we managed to get accreditation during the COVID period, and that backed up our resilience and making sure that we retain secure information, both ourselves and those of our customers. Uh, the ISO uh, 9001, we've been going now since, I think it was 1998, 99, when we first got ISO. And we made the transition two to three years ago to 2015. But that really provided the infrastructure for the organization to make sure that we had every process, every procedure documented, and it provided ultimate visibility right across the board for all our processes, uh, for all staff and for our leadership team. And of course, um, what we've been used to is having a business strategy and the business strategy was a rolling action plan. And that action plan led us to achieving each uh, strategic outcome for each year. And that put in place the foundation to be able to easily adapt to uh, the disruption of COVID-19. And uh, one of those items in terms of uh, the ISO 9001-2015 was regular business uh, management meetings. So they were formalized where we look at, obviously, our strategy role in action, our KPIs, and uh, business matters within the company. So we were all up to date. There was no catch-up for us, and that allowed us to easily adapt to, as I said, the COVID-19 um, preparation and then phasing moving in. So there were some casualties. We had to use the furlough scheme, but we only used it for a minority of the staff who were frontline. Uh, sorry, weren't frontline, were internal. And uh, we, we phased uh, those into furlough and we phased them back. So we have about four or five staff now out of, uh, I think it was 10 initially. We're, uh, we're sort of phasing our uh, operations back and getting back to normal. So one of the transitions was we had to move our online training. Uh, sorry, move to online training. The training was originally face-to-face -face where we uh, had our technical partners who would come and do training face-to-face -face in our training room. And uh, suddenly that was switched off that wasn't happening anymore. So it took us uh, about six weeks to mobilize to be able to provide the, the facilities for online training. But again, that was backed up by having a strategy of phasing in online training prior to COVID. And that was the strategy for this financial year. And uh, we were able to take advantage of that and move forward. And uh, that enabled us to get the technology in place to then deliver. And we've been doing that now for about six weeks. Um, and we're back to full strength in terms of the training staff uh, that provide the resources to be able to do that. 
another uh, element we had to do was obviously move from uh, face-to-face uh, product demonstrations and meetings, and we've had to. Uh, we did have a series already of uh, online, which we use to do internationally, more so than the UK. So we're able to work with our customers to give them demonstrations on the product, but we use the COVID to change that to a more readily available medium. So previously we were on a meeting room, but then we moved to Teams. And uh, we've been carrying out those seamlessly, but without any uh, face-to-face, obviously, it's just been online. And then if you look at the way uh, business has transformed, the our customers who wouldn't normally agree to the likes of Skype or uh, a meeting medium, you know, using video conferencing. What what it's done is it's became uh, or become acceptable now to do that, and that's one of the benefits because it's really give us um, a greater sense of productivity in terms of our sales team, and uh, whilst they can't go out and actively engage because it's a uh, sales are based on relationships and then engagement. We were still able to use our relationships and engagement, but using the video uh, as an as an ability to get body language and interaction with our customers over video conferencing. And also internally, I don't think I've used the hard hand telephone as such, the telephone unit and the handset. I don't think I've used it more than five or six times over the last three months. And video conferencing now, because our staff are all working internally, sorry, externally, and mainly home-based, but they do have to come in from time to time, uh, we've been able to just as easily, quite quickly, just click on and chat with our, uh, you know, with our staff or with our managers, and uh, everyone's got that facility to do so. So there's a massive in, improvement in productivity, both internally and externally. And uh, one of the cost benefits are we've managed to save on expenses, which is offset what we've not been getting in in revenue. So um, that's the sort of idea of how we've been mm-hmm. able to adapt to the situation. And um, our senior team leadership, uh, they've been working individually with their own departments and having regular huddles, keeping in touch. And it's really just become the norm now where we're fully adapted to be online and available. And uh, our staff have felt the benefit as well because some of them, even though they were coming from 20, 30 miles away, their travel time was something like ended between 30 minutes and one hour, 40 minutes and they've managed to save that time and adapt as well. So um, they're all the positives that's come out of it. Does that answer your question? Certainly does, and it seems as if it was um, a very seamless uh, transition almost uh, to the uh, the remote way of working, and there have been uh, some real uh, positive outcomes to come as a result of this uh, lockdown period, uh, for sure. Um, 
Just how has managing the transition, Mark, been from a mental health perspective, however? Because I'm interested to know that because that's been something very much at the forefront of the mind during this lockdown period, considering the social isolation side of things. And so there's been a great emphasis, as you've said there, on keeping communication channels open, making sure that everybody remains connected. Has it been easy managing that or has it just been a case of providing a little bit more reassurance to certain individuals, especially when it comes to those that have been furloughed as well? Well, previously we were socially conditioned to all work into a, in one or two offices. We've got two offices within our small site. We're a privately owned company um, and we've got open access, open door policy to the managers and the directors. And uh, we were, were very much a family orientated business. So we've been quite close to all our individual staff. And of course, uh, First of all, the shock of furlough and uh, furloughing staff, uh, that was unsettling. Uh, we had a, a mediation process and uh, we had the guidelines of the HR uh, external organisation to provide us with that. Um, and then, as I was saying earlier, what we've done is we've made sure that everyone was on furlough. We've had team huddles um, and those working out, out, of, uh, out of office the managers have been in regular contact and interacting with them. So it was it was fairly straightforward. They they had the ability to, to you know to knock on the door um, or contact or telephone or video conference. But uh, that backed up by regular updates of where we were each month um, and sometimes we had it two weekly. Uh, we were able to keep up to date with all our staff. Uh, so we've not suffered or been able to experience any issues around um, staff working externally to the business. And we've not had uh, knowingly any issues where mental health concerns are regarding uh, what we've been um, having to adapt to with this COVID situation. That's extremely positive to hear. And um, I'm, I'm conscious of uh, time. Uh, so just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, Mark, I would like to talk about the future. Um, over the next sort of 12 to 18 months, we know that we are going to have to adjust to a new way of life, a new way of working, as we have done during the lockdown period. But just what do you think is on the horizon for you and for Cortec developments over that time? And what do you really hope to achieve in the next 12 to 18 months? Okay. So it's a little bit early to give you the full diagnosis because obviously we've been a period of reacting and um, we'll use our management meetings, continue to progress those. And uh, our financial year ends in, uh, in November, uh, end of November. So we will actually, um, we're, we're now in the planning stages of what we're doing for the next year of our strategy and what the outcomes will be and that be defined towards the end of November, agreed to move on. Um, we're quite excited about uh, the new uh, way of working. Uh, we're not encouraging people, if, if they don't feel like, uh, to not have to come to work. Uh, so we, we want to use that as a backbone, and we want to make improvements in the, the technology and the facilities. Um, in terms of training, we're moving, obviously, we've had to knee-jerk, fast-forward 
what was already strategy. We're going to look towards having um, greater training material uh, production to be able to reduce uh, the co- the on online content time. So provide additional beneficial training resources. So it improves the productivity for our customers. And um, we don't think we're going to see a return to face-to-face training. Uh, So we're adapting to that. And we're also looking at improving how we're doing our online delivery of our product to be able to engage with our customers and to improve the the actual, um, how do you say, the demonstration, presentation, engagement. And we've already started working and set diary dates for being more open and accessible to our customers now that they've adapted and adopted the use of online medium to be able to have open forums. So when we're releasing product releases, we're going to be actually moving forward with actually not just releasing a communication, but giving a platform to be able to talk those through and allow our technical partners and our end users to be able to engage further with us. So that whole all has to be um, moved forward. And uh, we're also looking at online events, how we can excel, how we can differentiate to be able to present better and provide a real um, user experience in terms of joining us in a forum with a bit of fun and knowledge base and using what we we did previously where it's face-to-face with um, experts in the field of security and information. So there's there's a lot of things to do there. And uh, we guess that will take us into next year. And meanwhile, we're, um, we're continuing with our new product development. And, um, yeah, that's about it, really, <laughs> off the cuff as such. Certainly seems like there's plenty to get your teeth uh, stuck into um, over the course of the uh, the next year, Mark, absolutely. And yeah. given just how informative it's been having you join us to discuss this today, I actually think it would be fantastic from a listener's perspective to catch up in future and have you back on the programme with us just to see how things are getting on um, at that point in time. Yeah, that would be... Uh... I'd love the opportunity. That'd be very nice. Thank you. I'd certainly welcome that, Mark. It's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, programme today to share your views. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in future, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. Okay, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I hope uh, whoever's listening, I hope it's been benefit to you. And uh, please reach out. We're we're here and uh, we're happy to engage. Thank you. I would also issue a message to those listening. Please do continue to be sensible with the lifting of restrictions as well and look after yourselves and others because it does make a real difference in saving lives. I was speaking on today's programme to Mark Thomas, Director of Cortec Developments Limited. Uh, coming up next on today's show, I'll be joined, jo- you'll be joining Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords and Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. 
Scotland, as well as, of course, a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State, who made quite the career for himself despite being blind from birth. Having served in a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and being the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, he was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015. I hope you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. And all of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council 
will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good, as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. 
And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that 
Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now- it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the the years ahead. 
I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it, it 
tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, 
that has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways... Uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can 
support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government. Mm-hmm. But also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.